Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 126, Natural Wakefulness. Shambhala Acharya and cultural anthropologist Galen Ferguson joins us this week to discuss natural wakefulness, the four foundations of mindfulness, and the possible relationships between the academic study of culture and religion and Dharma practice. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Buddhist Geeks. This is Vince Horn. I'm here in the studio here in Boulder with Galen Ferguson. Galen, thank you for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Good to be here. And just a little background on Galen. He is a Shambhala Acharya and also a professor at Naropa University. And we're talking today a little bit both about his work as an academic and also his new book, which just came out, which is called Natural Wakefulness, Discovering the Wisdom We Were Born With. And we want to talk a little bit about that book because it's his first. Kind of surprising because you've been around the Dharma scene quite a long time, yeah? I began studying with uh, Trungpa Rinpoche in 1973. Nice. Mm -hmm. So what motivated you to, to write a, your first meditation book? <laughs> well, I was encouraged by Trungpa Rinpoche's lineage heir, Sakyang Mipam Rinpoche, some years ago to do more writing. And also, the book comes out of my experience leading retreats. I lead uh, weekends, week-long, and month-long retreats. And the process of having conversations with people over several years, particularly this is when I was living in Vermont, where I was not teaching university or academic work, but just one after another, this weekend, this week, this month. And I noticed certain themes emerging out of that that I felt, well, it would be useful, I think, to write these down and, and offer them to the general culture of awakening that's developing, let's say, in, in, in English-speaking countries. <laughs> Do you, would you say that you describe this book primarily as a meditation manual? Well, that's how some people think about it. it, it since the core of the book, the main chapters in the middle, are the four foundations of mindfulness. But before it goes to the uh, practice part, the training part, what you actually do, there are three or four chapters that introduce just kind of an approach to the spiritual path, altogether. And I thought those were equally important in a sense, rather than sort of what should I do or how should I do it and what are the details, but how should we all together, what should our approach be? And traditionally that's called the view, that before you actually begin walking and doing something, you first have a kind of perspective on why are we doing this or what's the way we're going to do go about this. Just kind of in short, what would you say the view is? Well, it's the title, Natural Wakefulness. So before the actual engagement with meditation practice or the details you know, that go with a meditation manual, as you say, there's just the sense that awakening is something completely innate and inherent in us. It's a kind of basic sanity or fundamental intelligence. There are all kinds of technical terms like janana in Sanskrit or yeshe in Tibetan, some kind of original knowing that is there from the very beginning. It's not just there after we've practiced meditation or after we've completed a retreat or done this or that. It's, it's given as the fundamental basis of our nature. And in fact, it explains why we're interested at all in the subject of waking up. 
Otherwise, we might go, well, no, I'd rather go back to sleep or I'd rather continue sleepwalking. So the very fact that we have some questions, some inquisitiveness that we pick up a book on meditation or compassion or rigpa or whatever it might be is a sign of this intelligence kind of, oh, what's that? Or is there more? Or is there deeper? So that's the view is that this is something completely native and natural to us. And the implication of that view is that we could be very gentle in uncovering that and letting that flower because it isn't really trying to get ourselves to be a completely different person or something we're not. If we're going to turn ourselves into something we're not, we're going to need aggression. We're going to need almost violence to make ourselves, oh, how will I become a Buddha? But if we have, as my teacher phrased it, enlightened genes, if our fundamental sort of genetic makeup in some way, if our nature is wakefulness, then it's just a matter of letting that come out. You know? So one could be non-aggressive very gentle in one's approach. So that view is really important. I mean, that's why the book is called that. It's not called a meditation manual for waking up, <laughs> which there are many wonderful ones. But this particular approach to the path, which we find, I think, in many traditions, I don't think it's, it's particularly unique or that we have some kind of patent or copyright on that, but that flavor of this is a matter of a natural unfolding, a natural wakefulness, yeah. Nice. And would would you say that that flavor is something that you have gotten from your practice lineage? I would say that's very much the flavor of how Trung Rinpoche taught and continuing Mipam Rinpoche of, uh, you know, even teaching something like shamatha, the calm abiding practice, that in turning the mind into an ally, Mipam Rinpoche says, well, we are not making the mind peaceful. We're discovering an innate peacefulness within the mind. So we find this, though, in many, many traditions. I mean, Zen tradition, this is Dogen Zenji's teaching in Soto Zen, that practice is a way of expressing enlightenment. It's not that we gain enlightenment by practicing. We're Buddhas. That's what Suzuki Roshi says in Zen Mind again and again. We're fundamentally awake, and practice is the way of kind of resuming that nature. And, of course, we find this in the Dzogchen tradition. We find this in uh, what are called the Uttara Tantra teachings on Buddha nature in Mahayana Many, many traditions where that sense of there's some innate insight in the Theravadan tradition, this is the basis of Vipassana, is that we have some innate knowing that can know the difference between what wakefulness is and what samsara will uh, be reproduced by. So it's a thread in the teachings of the Buddha. I mean, in, in the early stories, you know, of people encountering the Buddha, people woke up quite quickly sometimes, just a phrase, and then it will say, Shariputra became an arhat. Like like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's that kind of confidence in it doesn't have to take a thousand lifetimes. Mm. You know, it's very available. It's right around. It's right. It's near. Interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I definitely can see that thread uh, running throughout all the traditions. And, mm -hmm. and uh, at the same time, while you're talking, I was thinking of a related thread, mm -hmm. which is almost opposite to that, which is the kind of heroic That's right. effort. And I, I was thinking of like the Rinzai master who's like, right. Kensho, Kensho, Kensho. That's right. And I was thinking of some of my own teachers who encourage you to practice 18 to 20 hours a day, you know, the in the Theravada tradition of noting everything, the moment it arises, yeah. you know, going straight for uh, enlightenment, yeah. initial enlightenment. Yes. So I guess I'd be interested just seeing that those two are both threads what kind of relationship you see between those or how you've made sense of those two, maybe even in, in your writing? Yes, that's a very good question because I would say that was also a motivation for writing the book as I was trying to, just in my own understanding, reconcile the teachings about 
no effort, non-meditation. You don't need to do anything. There's nowhere you need to go. And then, you know, the Buddhist tradition contains immense numbers of techniques and practices and antidotes. Do this, you know, if you don't have compassion, apply this. Or as you were saying, that whole Rinzai flavor of, you know, kinsho or bust. You know, you've got to reach Satori during this particular session or elsewise you've lost this opportunity of the great matter of life and death. So I developed this sense of, oh, some teachings are emphasizing more nature and the naturalness of it. And other teachings are emphasizing more the importance of training and making an effort and having discipline. Those teachings that emphasize training and effort tend to have a uh, keen awareness of the strength of our habitual patterns. That there is a sense that just completely left to ourselves that we just might wander endlessly, right? And that we do need teachers to say, wake up, you know, apply yourself. Don't just go on and on with distraction, selfishness, aggression, and all those things. Actually, you could, you could engage and you could change the direction of your life. So I see this as a spectrum, depending on where we are at a given time in, in our journey. We may need teachings that emphasize more effort and training. And then usually in the Tibetan tradition, the nine yana perspective, you sort of begin with Four Noble Truths and working and effort and the Mahayana. And then at the end, it's a matter of complete naturalness of it. The ninth yana, traditionally called Ati in Sanskrit or Dzogchen in Tibetan. So in a sense, that whole spectrum is available there. And uh, it may not be quite so linear as starting with yana one and going to yana nine, but it may be that all along the way, there are these invitations to the naturalness of it. And that any moment why not apply some effort? It's not like effort is bad or training is bad or inappropriate. So the whole thing became much more fluid for me as I kind of chewed on, almost as the koan, what you're bringing up, the fact that we definitely have teachings on training and nature. Yeah. <laughs> and in this particular book, Natural Wakefulness, you focus primarily in meditation instructions on, on what are traditionally called the four foundations of mindfulness. And I'm glad you mentioned the kind of progression of the practice because traditionally, uh, if correct me if I'm wrong, this is seen as part of the Hinayana teachings to begin with. Well, please we, correct we, me. <laughs> well, with, within the Tibetan tradition, it yes. would be called Hinayana. Yes. Right, exactly. But that's, of course, a pejorative term that wouldn't be used. We wouldn't want to say that's the same as Theravadan. Sure, sure. Yeah, and of course, in the Theravadan tradition, these four have been taught and Trung Rinpoche would talk about a great Burmese master named Mahasi Sayada and the revival of the mindfulness tradition, and he had a lot of respect for that. And So, yes, this is classical teaching of the Buddha. You know, early Nikaya Buddhism, as it's called, the Buddha taught Four Noble Truths, Eightfold Paths, and mindfulness is one of those paths. And then there's a shorter and a longer version, I believe, of the Four Foundations of Mindfulness Sutta or Sutra. So I, I really was happy to do something completely classical, that everyone would acknowledge who was a Buddhist that the Buddha had taught that, right? It's not like, did he teach Buddha nature or did he teach this or that? Did he teach Tantra? There's a lot of debate about that, but everybody would agree that in the canon of teachings of the Buddha would be these four foundations. So it's classical or it's core. And at the same time, my own teacher, Trung Rinpoche, gave a couple of seminars on the four foundations that did not uh, go in this order of body, feeling, mind, and phenomena, which is how they classically are. He varied that, 
And he said based on what had been transmitted to him orally. In his version that he taught us, it was body, life, effort, and mind. So the main body of the book, Natural Wakefulness, is really sort of contemplating both of these. Here's what the Buddha said, and here's what this Buddha for me, Trungpa Rinpoche, said, and how do those swim together, or where are they different, and so forth. Uh, and, and also, nowadays, you know, through the work of someone like John Kabat-Zinn, mindfulness has become extremely popular in the United States, at least, and it's taught in, like, wellness settings of outpatient clinics. So mindfulness seems like one of the most accessible aspects of the Buddhist teachings. Traditionally in Asia, I don't know that mindfulness would have been such a big deal the way it is in this part of the world. I, I think people might have, there would have been lay people and how they would have approached a temple and maybe you would have done nundro, or the prostrations first or something. But in this part of the world, mindfulness has become a main uh, street to enter the Buddhist teachings. And so I wanted to be part of that dialogue as well. Yeah. <laughs> so would you say that pretty much anyone coming to this book no matter their background of practice, could find something here in the four foundations that would be useful or helpful to their practice. That's what I felt, and that's what's been borne out in my own experience. I teach a month-long retreat, usually in northern Colorado, at Shambhala Mountain Center, and we'll take each of the four as the themes for the four weeks. So the first week, mindfulness of body. And at some point, depending on sort of how the stew of the group of us sitting together cooks, you know, mindfulness of feelings and mindfulness of mind as well. And we've had people doing those retreats who have been sitting for years, and we've had people who've never sat at all. And they just come in, and for some reason, they see it on the web, and they say, I'm going to sit for it's a crazy month. crazy folks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they just jump into the deep water. And sometimes they do very well. So I've found that this is a topic. I've also done a little work teaching uh, meditation in prisons. A couple of prisons, one... Uh, federal place in Alabama, and then a state prison in uh, Oregon. In both those settings as well, it seemed like the mindfulness teachings were very accessible, that we could talk about our own experience and practice. So I've, I've just found it a, every summer, in a sense, I'm going back over that, and it just seems endless as to how much there is in the teachings of the foundations of mindfulness. Yeah, Fantastic. And you started to talk about how in Asia it would probably be slightly different interest. And that kind of connects in with another part of your training, which mm -hmm. is that you received a PhD in cultural anthropology from Stanford. And I'm wondering how you bring together, on the one hand, this kind of Western academic tradition with teaching the Eastern contemplative path and how you see these things fitting together. Because I'm sure... That's been a living question for you probably for some time. Mm -hmm. It has. And living question is a nice way to put it, you know. These things are like existential koans in a way of sort of, okay, there's the nature teachings and there's training teachings and there's, in my own life, a sense of how those go together. And then likewise, you know, I studied for with Trung Prempche 13, 14 years while he was alive. And then that's when I went back to graduate school and so forth. And so that whole process of I hadn't completed an undergraduate degree and then, you know, doing field work and, and writing my dissertation. That was, say, another 10 years. And then how do those go together or not go together? One thing is that in cultural anthropology that I found very useful and helpful and that I use even teaching at Naropa was this emphasis on 
what's the cultural matrix, so to speak, in which any given phenomenon or practice or individual or even group of people, what's going on systemically or overall? So that in the book, for instance, when we talk about materialism and the materialistic outlook, that's not a matter of a single bad person somewhere, <laughs> even Dick Cheney, you know, who's sitting and sort of emanating materialism. That's something that we all breathe and live in every day when we're surfing the web or when we're seeing billboards or ads in magazines or whatever it might be. We're living and breathing that sense of, am I getting and spending? Am I acquiring? How am I doing with that? Or what do I want? Do I want an upgrade? How am I going to get another one of those? That's something that's kind of almost in the whole atmosphere. And I feel like my training in graduate school, you know, repeatedly shaped my ears to like, listen for that rather than just focus in on, oh, it's her or it's him or, or whatever. What's the bigger perspective? Trung Rinpoche had a phrase, panoramic awareness. That was one of the ways he talked about vipassana or insight or laktong as it's called in Tibetan is that it's a kind of panoramic awareness. So that was a point of a kind of similarity or connection of like, oh, okay, it's like a network, you know, Indra's net or those kind of images of in Huayin and Avatamsaka of like, what's the network of dependently related causes? It's not a single link in the 12 links. It's the whole pattern, yeah? You're trying to see the situational patterning of the whole. So that was a point of commonality. A point of difference, I would say, is that when I was being trained in graduate school, we did a lot of studies of colonialism. You know, anthropology has traditionally studied indigenous cultures, and it, for many years, it studied those ignoring the fact that, let's say, when Evans Pritchard is in the north of Africa, the reason that he could be there studying those people is that they'd been colonized by the British and that the people understood that there were soldiers backing him up and that if you didn't go along or you harmed him in any way, that invasion would become violent. So anthropology and colonialism are kind of born together. And so... That has a politics implicit in it of anti-colonial work, post-colonial work. And I would say that in, in academic settings, occasionally maybe a kind of aggression, kind of intellectual aggression of, you know, we trying to overcome whatever lingering colonialist mentalities. When we contemplate the suffering historically and in contemporary situation, it can bring up in us a kind of anger, and we're not quite sure what to do about that. So I would say that for me, it was not always easy to reconcile things I was reading about and contemplating and trying to understand, or my time you know, in West Africa where there was a military dictatorship in power. The Nigerians would say, we have kleptocracy. We have rule by thieves. <laughs> that's, that's what's going on. We have a kleptocracy that they're stealing the natural resources and the oil, and they're selling that to Shell or whoever, and then they send their own children abroad to schools while our schools are impoverished. So contemplating that on a daily basis, I wasn't sure how to put that together with gentleness and non-aggression and non-violence and, and the, the Buddhist outlook, which tends in a certain sense to be more cheerful. I mean, that was a word that Trung Rinpoche would often he'd say, cheer up, you know, cheer up. And this was a person who you know, had seen his own country in, invaded and his own teachers jailed and tortured and imprisoned and, and murder, and yet, as with his holiness the Dalai Lama, that sort of recurrent theme of, we should come back to compassion, you know, that in the long run, that's what's meaningful. So I would say I went through some kind of journey of how to put together a kind of awareness of the world that takes into account history and politics and collective experience 
with a kind of dharmic experience and dharmic practice. And I'd say I'm still, I mean, maybe you can tell just in the conversation, I'm still, it's a work in progress or it's an ongoing journey. It's not like I've come to, I've landed and that's it. I've settled it. It's just, it's all good. Or, or, uh, or, or it's should, all bad. Exactly. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. And we should take to the streets or whatever. It, it's a daily, oh, how do, how do we open our hearts and our minds to what's going on and, and what's helpful? What would be skillful to do? And again, like with the nature training perspective, sometimes there's an environmental cause. It might be helpful to demonstrate and say, yeah, no, we don't want you to pollute that river or whatever. And then other times it's definitely helpful to do some sitting practice, yeah, and, and look at one's own state of mind so that in that demonstration we're not going over into aggression and making things worse even though we're trying to make things better. So that's a ongoing process for me, yeah. And I've heard in some of your classes where you teach about the Buddhist tradition, particularly in a class called The Three Jewels, mm-hmm. that you use a particular schema that's related to what you've been talking about where you look at the difference between say someone who's inside of a tradition and then someone who's kind of outsider looking in or outsider that's not aware of the inside and, and how those two relate. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about that schema because it seemed like a really interesting way to approach religion and its relationship to what you're calling the cultural matrix. Yes. I want to give some credit to how I came to use that particular schema and how I heard of it. There was a graduate student and she's now actually a professor at University of Colorado named Holly Gailey did her graduate training at uh, Harvard. And she mentioned to me, I was saying, you know, I'm going to teach, it wasn't, wasn't this course, it was another religious studies methodology course at Naropa, graduate course. And I said, I'm thinking of different things there. I mean, my own background in part is in the anthropology of religion. What would you suggest? And she made a number of suggestions. And one of them was, you know, in some of my courses, we've done this insider-outsider perspective. And there is a collection by a scholar named McCutcheon, that's called the insider-outsider problem in religious studies. And in that collection, I believe, or another one closely related, a scholar named Kim Knott, K-N-O-T-T, has this article on insider-outsider with a schema in which uh, someone could be looking at, let's say, the three jewels of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, completely classic you know, Buddhist teaching. As an outsider, a scholar who has no particular practice, you might call them an outsider-outsider, or as an outsider who becomes an insider. Maybe as part of their study, they go to a talk by Thich Nhat Hanh on the Three Jewels, or they go to a Zendo. You know, they go and talk to a Lama in Tibet. You know, someone like David Germano, who, you know, would travel and do fieldwork in Tibet. Maybe they go and talk to insiders and kind of become quasi-insiders themselves for a while. But in the end, they go home and they write their book or their thesis or whatever. So they're kind of outsider insiders. Then there are insiders like, let's say, my colleague at Naropa, Judith Simmer-Brown, who's a longtime student of the Buddha Dharma and practitioner herself, but writes a book for other scholars on the feminine principle in Tibetan Buddhism. It's called Dakini's Warm Breath. So she's an insider who can also communicate and be in dialogue with outsiders. Other scholars, whether they're practitioners or not, can read you know, her particular approach to interpreting the feminine principle, the Dakini principle, Kandro. And then there are insider insiders who may practice, maybe they sit zazen, maybe they study the teachings of the Buddha according to a particular tradition, and they're within their sangha, and they have no particular interest really in outreach or writing books about it or anything. So there's a whole spectrum there from outsider-outsider 
to outsider-insider to insider-outsider to insider-insider. We just do this as a visual schema on the board of these four different approaches. And in the course of that course that you're referring to, Three Jewels, we read things and we would often say, oh, well, we're reading His Holiness the Dalai Lama. What's he? Oh, he's an insider that can communicate to outsiders. Yeah? He, he's For quite, sure. <laughs> yes. Globally, in fact. Yeah? Oh, we're reading this scholar, and she or he doesn't particularly have a practice, but they're very learned about the Heart Sutra, let's say. They've read all the commentaries, maybe in the original, you know. Oh, they're an outsider-outsider. So we would sort of classify so that we were, were reflecting on, well, what's the perspective that this person is bringing to bear in approaching the three jewels? And what is a Buddha? What is the Dharma? What is the Sangha? And one question that we would contemplate would be, well, which of these is the best perspective? That's a frequent question. If you're going to do an interpretation like, which is the best interpretation of Shakespeare or uh, Longchenpa or whatever it might be? And we <laughs> would have to uh, become more subtle than just saying, oh, well, the best is the objective scholar, because they haven't necessarily practiced to have the experiential dimension or, on the other hand, saying the best is always the person who's practiced, who's sat that session or done that vipassana retreat or whatever. That person, she or he, may not actually know the history of Mahasi Thayada or how that came about or why there needed to be a Satipatthana revival. Like, how, why was that? You know, oh, you mean there was a while in which people weren't talking about mindfulness or practicing insight meditation. So there is definitely something that each of these perspectives can teach us. You know, at the end, when I would ask for papers to be written, it was to try and synthesize everything that we'd read. What do scholars have to teach us? What do those with a ob so-called objective point of view? What do insiders, you know, people who've been thoroughly kind of marinating for years, if not lifetimes, as far as we know, you know, Kenpo Trongo Rinpoche, someone like that, Kenpo Sultim Gyatso, these people are just completely pervaded by, I mean, they're the ultimate insiders, what do they have to teach us that we wouldn't gain just by reading a secular scholar? So it was an attempt to kind of try to be synthetic in the sense of synthesizing or integral is another way, integrative approach, some people call this. My position at Naropa is in what's called interdisciplinary studies. And that's really what interdisciplinary is often about is what can you draw from religious studies, anthropology, psychology, that you wouldn't get by simply taking one lens? How would that sort of multiple ways of viewing something get a more holistic understanding? So that's the aim of the courses. Overall, what can we come to about Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha that we wouldn't have gotten just by any single perspective? Nice, and it sounds like you're really the personification of that question. <laughs> yeah, maybe it is an existential thing again of like my own life has been how to put together, you know, that's a good insight. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us and, and for sharing a little bit about your book and about your work as both an anthropologist and as a Dharma teacher. It's really fascinating stuff. Yes. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been very enjoyable to talk with you here. Very lively and great questions. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, 
idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.